everybody, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about being a conqueror. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to say Happy New Year. As we move into 2021, maybe one of your goals is to read the Bible more this year. There's something that we do as a church that might help. We are constantly running Bible plans on the YouVersion app for people to read together. If you're interested in being a part of one of those, you can simply go to creekside.me and click on the yellow button that says YouVersion in order to connect with us on one of those plans. I believe that God's word can transform your life. And if it is one of your goals to read it more this year, I think it's a great goal. And we'd love to be able to help with that. So go to creekside.me and click on that yellow button that says version. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen today. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. And I think that as, as we look at this passage today, uh, it's funny, this doesn't always happen, but but there are some things that, that, that God was laying on my heart anyway, and then we, we happen to open to a passage where I, I think God has already said so much of what was in my heart. Uh, before we get there, I just want to catch you up a little bit on where we're at in this series. We are studying through the book of Romans, and within the book of Romans, we're, we're kind of breaking down into series uh, where Paul breaks his kind of book down that he has written to this group of Christians in Romans. And, and we've talked about the gospel, and we've talked about the gift that is Jesus, and we've talked about in this series how we are conquerors. And I don't think, if I could just be honest with you, that I've said as clearly uh, the things that I want to say about being a conqueror. I think the sermons have been fine, but, but in this series, I see these different ways that we have victory, and that's how we started. Being a conqueror is to be victorious, and, and Paul is showing us all of these different ways that we have victory in this section of Romans. He's talked about having victory over sin. He's talked about having victory over death. He's talked about having victory over bondage or the law and the way that the law kind of holds us down because of our sinfulness. And he's talked about having victory over me, our inability to live in the way that we want to live, that we feel like we should live, that we know we should live. And now in Romans 8, Paul like begins to move towards the crescendo ending that is going to be really all about being conquerors. In fact, he's going to say it. That's where we took the series from. And Paul begins to move in this chapter towards this big, big, famous, awesome, cool finish. And here today, we're going to see really two big ideas, kind of just like he collides these two big ideas together into one, and, and they are sanctification, which we've talked about, is, is the growth that Christians have, and security, sanctification and security, which is to say that Paul talks about here how we can know that we are Christians when we are Christians, how we can be secure in our faith. And here's my proposition for this morning. This is what Paul says. He says it over 17 verses, but here's the one-liner for you today. Christians have victory over flesh and fear because we are children of God. Christians have victory over flesh and fear because we are children of God. Now there's a lot in this these verses, these 17 verses, and uh, today I want to I want to talk about mainly the victories that they point out for 
Christians. There's, there's some nuances. There's a lot of theology here, actually. Paul, as we'll see, is going to bring up this idea of the flesh, and he's going to start to hash out the, the flesh, which is a really big theme in, in Paul's writings, the flesh. And we'll talk just briefly about that, but I really want to focus on the incredible gifts, the gifts of sanctification and security, really, that Paul shows us in this passage. And here's how he begins. He begins so beautifully. I think in this series, I've said a lot, he begins in a weird place. I like where he begins this week. This is really good. Uh, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is, no con- there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Whenever you see therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. You've probably heard that in churches before. And, and here you have to ask, like, what is Paul connecting this really amazing two verses to? And and nobody's sure, nobody really knows. And some people go all the way back to Romans 3 and and where Paul says, look, that we've fallen short of the glory of God, but but we can have justification through the gift of Jesus. We can have forgiveness of sins through the gift of Jesus. So maybe this therefore connects to that. But for sure we know that it connects to Romans 7, 6, where Paul says, but now... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so Paul said, we don't serve in the old way of the written code. We're not people of the law. We're people of grace. And now, because we're people of grace, we serve by the way of the spirit. And, and now Paul comes back to that. Therefore, I told you last week, if you heard the sermon, it was a big parenthetical statement, like 18 verses of parenthetical statement. He comes back to this idea of now we are people who serve by the spirit and not through the written law. And he's going to unpack that for us. What does that exactly mean? And what even more than what does it mean? What does it mean for us? Like how does that actually impact my life that I am a person who lives by the spirit? And he begins by saying this wonderful line. It was like one of the first verses that I knew by heart. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus. Condemnation is just a word that is opposite of justification. We've talked about that word a lot in this series, but if you haven't been here, if you don't know, justification is really the declaration of innocence, that we have been declared innocent, made innocent by the work of Jesus on the cross if we place our faith in him. And so Paul comes along here and says, look, you've been made innocent. You've been declared innocent. You've been called innocent. He said all that in the book of Romans. And he just wants to remind us that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no guilt. There is no punishment because of your guilt if you are in Christ. I think that some people really struggle with that because they want to hold a little bit of guilt or they feel like they're going to get a little bit of punished or like they have to work, you know, kind of hard in order to stay on the right side of God. And and as we've seen, Christians will try not to sin. They're going to try to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see that here. They're going to try to live in a godly way. At the same time, Christians would do well to recognize that there is now no condemnation for them. There is no guilt. There is no punishment because of guilt if you are in Christ. And that's an interesting way to describe it, right? In Christ. 
As Christians, we believe that we are all sinners and that Jesus came from heaven to earth. He died for our sins and therefore we have the option, we did choose this option as Christians to embrace him as our savior from that sin and then we get his forgiveness, we become justified and all that. But when Paul talks here, he doesn't say there is no condemnation for those who are Christians. He says for those who are in Christ, which is a description of, of what it means in some ways to be a Christian. We, I, I really, I've, with my whole heart, there, there's so many big things that I just feel like I need to say today. With my whole heart, I believe that American Christianity has twisted the gospel message and the way that we describe what it means to be a Christian is more like, did you pray a prayer sometime in your life? Did you have some mental belief that said, I, I think that Bible stuff is true and then you prayed a prayer and you're good to go. You might've done it at VBS and never spent a single day thinking about Jesus since then and you're still a Christian. It's why such a high percentage of people people check the box that says Christian in our country while at the same time seemingly mocking Christians uh, on Facebook. Like how is it possible? And it's because we've twisted the gospel and twisted what it really means to be a Christian. And Paul, a couple of times in our passage, but throughout the New Testament, describes Christians in a ton of different ways that I think are far better than I prayed some prayer once. And here one of the ways he does it is he says that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We've accepted his gift of salvation, sure. There may have been, there probably was a prayer involved, but our lives have become completely wrapped up, engulfed in him and the new life that he has given us. Being a Christian is not just praying some prayer or checking some box because you think it's more right than some other religion or whatever. It is moving from an old life that was dead in its sin to the realm of Christ. We talked about, because Paul talks about it a lot here and he's gonna do it again in a second, the two choices of realms that we can exist in. The realm of sin, death, flesh, law, condemnation, or the realm that is grace and here, Jesus. We become uh, in Christ, we become part of Christ, we are wrapped up in Christ. Paul talks about it more in other places. Our lives are just in the middle of this circle that is Jesus, and it changes everything about how we live our lives. That's how Paul chooses to describe what it means to be a Christian. There is no condemnation, not for people who maybe said a prayer once but have never thought about Jesus again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who have their very being and life in Christ. Because, Paul says, through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, the law of sin and death is the Old Testament. If that sounds really harsh, well, I agree with you, but I've had the, um, you know, the ability to preach through the book of Romans to this point, so I see what Paul means. I've, I've heard what Paul means. Paul, and if you don't, then you need to go back and listen to previous sermons because I've detailed it a lot. Paul is really harsh about the Old Testament law, but as we saw last week, in fact, Paul says so clearly, it's not the law that's bad. That was my whole sermon last week, right? The law is good. It's our sinfulness that twists and takes the law and turns it into something that is bad for us. So the law is good, we are sinners. That's not a new idea to us that Paul would be harsh sounding about the law if we're, as we study through the book of Romans. What is new to us is the idea of the spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, the Holy Spirit to this point has been brought up a total of two times in the book of Romans. And now in this chapter, really the first, you know, uh, 25 or so verses, Paul is going to use the word spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, 21 times. So there is a change here, right? Paul has barely talked about the Holy Spirit, and now he talks a whole bunch about the Holy Spirit. Here's what Christians believe. Christians have believed this for ages and ages. I'm not making it up. We believe in a triune God. That is that our God is one being that is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In my kind of Christian upbringing, the background of our church, we talk a great deal about the Father, and we talk a great deal about the Son, and we almost pretend as though the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. And I think part of that is, is simply that we worry about these things that, that sometimes are manifest as the Holy Spirit works in people's lives. But we really do ourselves an injustice because Paul, as we'll see in this passage, and as you, if you just read through the New Testament as a whole, Paul and other writers... You see that the Holy Spirit plays an amazing role in the life of believers. In fact, and I won't come back to this, you can just hear it as I go through. You see that the whole thing, because we serve a triune God, like all the parts of our salvation and our sanctification, our growth in Christianity, it's all like part of the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father. All of it is working, all of that is working together. It's not like the Father created and Jesus saved and the Holy Spirit sanctifies. It's all part of the same deal. But even if you break it up and you say, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? You see some incredible things in Scripture that are so important and frankly lacking in the church today. And we're going to see two of them in this passage of Scripture. That's where Paul is moving. He sanctifies Christians and he offers security to Christians. Two really big deals. If you struggle to grow in your Christian faith, if you're struggling to grow or overcome a sin, Man, alive, you need to think more maybe about the Holy Spirit's work in your life, and hopefully we'll do that today. If you struggle to, uh, to, with doubt or you question, am I really saved? Am I really gonna get into heaven, you know? Then maybe you need to think more about the Holy Spirit's work in your life because that's the two big ideas that Paul gives us, and it's connected to the Holy Spirit here. Here's what Paul says in verses three and four. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law couldn't save us because it was weakened by our flesh. Paul uses this word 12 times in our passage. Uh, Paul really uh, just connects it to this realm that we've been seeing of death and the realm of condemnation and the realm of law. And now he kind of brings in this new word, flesh. Uh, The message of Romans, an incredible commentary on the book of Romans. And in fact, I'm gonna just pause just because I'm a pastor and I want you to grow in your faith on your own and not just rely on my sermons. If you're looking for like a single commentary series to like dive into, if you're just interested in exploring the Bible more, I think the the message of and then whatever book it is, I think most of them are just incredible at being slightly technical so that it kind of pushes you, but not so technical that you want to quit like some of the other commentaries that I use as I study through the book of Romans. So the message of Romans says this about flesh. It's the whole of humanity viewed as corrupt and unredeemed are follow, fallen, egocentric human nature, or more briefly, listen to this part, the sin-dominated 
self, the sin-dominated self. The law did not have the power to save us because we are sinners. If a person would have followed the law perfectly, done everything right, never messed up, never rejected God, never done anything wrong, had lived sinlessly as Jesus did, then, then it could have saved us. It's kind of what's implied here. But that's not true for any of us because we have a sin-dominated self that causes us to break the law even after we have become Christians. The law could not save us because of our sin-dominated self, but God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus came to be a sin offering. Uh, Wikipedia It's not what I recommend for commentary use, but Wikipedia about the sin offering says, this offered sacrifice accompanied the important required core means of atonement for the committing of an unintentional transgression of a prohibition that either has brought guilt upon the community of Israel or an individual. It was, a, it was an offering made in the Old Testament, uh, not always an animal, sometimes an animal, that was really because we, they had guilt in their lives. And Jesus came because we were guilty of breaking the law, sometimes unintentionally, in fact, but we were guilty of breaking the law. And so he came to be the atonement for those sins. And I love, man, I love the ways in which Paul describes how Jesus atoned for our sins. There's a bunch of theories about this uh, atonement, and, and we need to believe. It is important for every Christian to believe that Jesus died as a substitutionary atonement on our behalf, that he died in our place for our sins. Uh, But sometimes I think we'd do better if we looked at some of the nuances of that that the Bible brings forward to us. Because we say, well, you just substitute and we we can kind of pigeonhole ourselves and and we don't go wide and deep on how incredible that gift is and how multifaceted it was for Jesus to do that for us. And in this passage, Paul, he shows us two of those things. One is that he condemned sin. What does that mean? I think that Colossians 2, 13 and 14 kind of explains what that means. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has, listen to this, he has taken it away and he nailed it to the cross. It is as though when Jesus hung on the cross, a, a list of our sins was there and Jesus hung that, or God hung that list there in his body so that they might be done away with. Our legal indebtedness could be gone. It could be wiped away. We could be justified to use the word that Paul is using in the book of Romans. I love that. It's like the, the sin, my sin was condemned itself. It hung there on the cross in the person of Jesus. But he also says, and now the requirements of the law might be met in us. I don't know. I I don't know exactly what Paul means by that. He can take a couple of shots. One would just be that in some ways, Jesus, by dying for our sins, made it so that we have fulfilled the law, even though we haven't, which is really cool in and of itself. And I think there's merit to that idea. But, but in some ways, I think we should read it this way. We broke the law. The law showed us that we needed punishment because of that. And Jesus died as that punishment. And so now the righteous requirements of the law has been met. It is as though, and this is a stolen analogy, and I don't think it's a great analogy, but it's an analogy nonetheless. Somebody paid your ticket for you. Kind of minimizes grace, it seems like. But if somebody paid your ticket for you, 
the ticket is now paid. Even though you broke the law, you no longer have to pay the punishment. Jesus did that for us. And so we see that while Jesus atoned, like the way that the New Testament writers talk about it, I think it adds depth to how we view it. It was as though his body was a list of our sins. And it was condemned on that cross. Jesus was condemned for our sins. And it is as though he paid the punishment. He did pay the punishment for our sins when he died on that cross. That is why we now, this is all connected, that is why we now can be in Christ and no longer just wrapped up in a law that we can never fulfill so that we deserve condemnation. We can only have no condemnation because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He continues, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desire. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Those outside of Christ are focused on their sin-dominated self. And those inside Christ, those in Christ are focused on doing what the Spirit desires. Now, again, this doesn't mean, and we've seen this quite clearly in Romans 7, that every Christian always does everything perfectly or every non-Christian always does everything terribly. Uh, Like sometimes Christians get it wrong, sometimes non-Christians get it right. But it does mean that our lives in Christ should be vastly different than lives apart from Christ because we who are in Christ are doing everything we can to serve the Spirit of God that now indwells us, that lives in us. That's a big deal. Uh, and then he ends with this word, and I'm going to let it hang out there until the end of this sermon. He says, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. I think that word is so important for us today. And I think that most of you are not feeling very much peace. And I wonder if it's because you are not allowing for the spirit to govern your life. Because it seems that the two are intertwined completely here. But we'll let that hang out there until the end. Because I think what he says at the end is partly how we have peace. In Romans 8, 6 through 8, he says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. That's how Paul describes a life apart from Christ. They cannot please God. Even though they'll get it right sometimes, they cannot please God. Because they're in fact enemies of God that need saved. Paul continues, Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, talking to Christians, talking to those of us who are Christians... All of us in this room, I believe, as I look around, I don't know you out there, but this is for us who are Christians. Romans 8, 9 through 11, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Again, he returns to the realm language. And I think just one more time, this is such a big deal because I don't know if you could demonstrate in a bigger, more important way how differently a Christian should live versus somebody outside of Christ than describe two entire different realms. It's like you live on a different planet, right? You should be living totally different. I think if I was a sci-fi 
fan, then I'd probably have a much better analogy for this, but I'm not. But like two realms, two spheres, that's, that's really demonstrating something quite different, right? I mean, it's not just like two lands or two cities. It's two totally different spheres that we are operating out of. And as Christians, who's Paul, who Paul is writing to, that should compel us to be thinking and living completely different than we did before we switched realms. But then he says, in this realm, you have the Spirit of God living in you. That's such a big idea. And he's demonstrating here that, and by the way, if you're wondering, what does that even look like? I have no idea. I don't think anybody has any idea what that even means. It's not like, you know, as I pictured as a kid, little baby Jesus in my heart or whatever. I, I'm pretty sure if they actually took my heart out, that you're not going to see a little baby Jesus in there, right? Nothing like that. But in some, I mean, what this looks like in the spiritual sense, I have no clue, but I can tell you that it demonstrates something quite incredible, that the Holy Spirit would indwell us and become a part of our lives in such a way that the way it's described by the authors writing through the power of the Holy Spirit is that he is inside of you. Like that is an incredibly big deal. The Spirit of God lives in you and therefore you should be sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you don't, I would ask you two questions. If you've never sensed the Holy Spirit's movement in your life, if you've never, and, and again, let me just, I'm not, I just think it's very important. Um, this doesn't mean something crazy, you know, like we might think of it. It it's always will be in line with Scripture. I think that's really important as the Holy Spirit leads you. If you ever, since the Holy Spirit's leading and it's telling you to do something the Bible has told you not do, to do, then you are not sensing the leading of the Holy Spirit. But if you've never sensed the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, then number one, are you really a Christian? <laughs> I mean, because all of this here is telling me that the Holy Spirit becomes the way in which we grow in our faith. And I would just wonder, like, if you've never sensed the Holy Spirit calling you to do something, if you've never sensed the Holy Spirit's movement in your life encouraging you or comforting you, then, then are you actually in the realm of Christ? You may say yes to that question. I hope you say yes to that question. And the second question, then, I would ask this. Are you actually asking the Holy Spirit to lead you? Or, and even more, are you even taking any second of any day to listen to what the Holy Spirit might say to you in your life? Are you taking any time to ask God to show you how you ought to live your life? Are you even thinking about what God might have you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Are you reading the Word of God in the Bible and then even pondering, God, how might I live this out today? Please actually give me an answer. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of Christians, and I think as Christians, therefore, we have an obligation to shut off some of the noise, to actually turn off all of the devices that we have on, and to say, hey, Holy Spirit, since you've, since you've made the gracious decision to come live inside of me, how would you have me live my life today? But I don't think most most people who call themselves Christians and even those who are Christians are doing that today. I don't think we're doing that. Now clearly there's some crossover here between sanctification, one more time, that's growing as a Christian, that is becoming more innocent because we have been declared innocent, that is learning to live as a child of God as we'll see in a second because we have been made children of God. I think there's crossover between the Holy Spirit's movement in doing that, sanctifying us, 
and the security that he brings in our salvation. Because as you sense the Holy Spirit's movement in your life, convicting you of sin, compelling you to do more, asking you to change your life, encouraging you, comforting you when life is hard, as you sense those things, it helps you grow, but it also shows you that in fact, you are secure in your faith because the Spirit has become a part of your life. Uh, Elsewhere, the the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as like a deposit on our salvation. He comes into our lives as a guarantor, a guarantor of the fact that someday we will spend eternity in heaven. And so as the Holy Spirit convicts and encourages and comforts and moves you forward in your sanctification process, at the same time, that brings the level of security that you are, in fact, saved for eternity. And oh, by the way, On top of all that, it says, look, no matter what happens here, even if they kill you, you have life, a spiritual life, a new life that will last for eternity. And then Paul just, I think because it's awesome, maybe, I don't know, it seems to come out of nowhere. He's like, and on top of that, even though you have life despite death, you're actually going to get a new body someday, a resurrected body. And that's so cool. He describes it more clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death is swallowed up, has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be resurrected if we are Christians and we will have a new and more glorious body that is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away is our faith and what we have in our faith that is described in 1 Peter. Paul continues, Romans 8, 12 through 13, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to live according to the to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit, You put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Another description of Christians. But really the call of the whole passage, right? If this is true for Christians, if we are people who have moved from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit and the Holy Spirit has come to indwell in us and he's sanctifying and securing us in our salvation, then we have an obligation. And the obligation is to do our best to live in light of what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do as he reveals truth to us and encourages and convicts and guides us. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit who you receive does not make you slaves, I just really pay attention to this, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Romans. It's uh, incredible. I would encourage you to go home and read it again on your own. Just maybe think about it, ponder it, reflect on it. Let the Holy Spirit say something to you through it, you know, because it, it is so beautiful. As Christians, this is what it's saying, we are adopted into the family of God. We become God's children. Uh, I think making this imagery more staggering, I, I hate to take an, a very powerful image and, and dissect it at all, but 
But I think it's important for you to know that in the Roman world, this is the book of Romans being written to a Roman audience. In the Roman world, adoption was a very serious thing. It took several meetings. It was very expensive. It was prolonged. And here's what I just learned in studying for this uh, sermon this sermon today. Romans could take the life of their natural child or they could disown them and take away their inheritance for their natural child, biological child. But they could not do that for a child. They could not take the life or disinherit the children that they adopted. It was sealed. It was final. You were making this choice to take in this baby and now you were going to raise this baby as your child forever more. And I think that that just magnifies the beauty of what God is saying to us in this passage. If you have moved into the realm of Christ, then you have been adopted by the creator of the universe and you have become his child. Now, I just, I want to just say, I understand that the father language can be difficult for some people. Uh, I say this every time I talk about this, but I, picturing God as a father for some people is like, oh, he's a drunk jerk or whatever it might be. But I would just have you know that this is a perfect father. Everything that you wished your father would be, that's what we have in our God if we come to Christ through faith. And here it says that the Holy Spirit testifies about this adoption and therefore we can cry out Abba Father. Now you know people talk about what this word Abba means and I actually got from my new favorite pastor Bob Utley uh, I think what is the perfect description of Abba because often I've heard it as daddy. People say well it means daddy. People say well that's like you know kind of too little kiddish like uh, so it's not it's not a good translation. And what Bob Utley said is, is think about if you have a good relationship with your dad or if you know somebody who has a good relationship with their dad, think about whatever, whatever word they use for their dad when they're at home. Maybe not out in public, but in those intimate moments, whatever they say, whether that's daddy, uh, I've called my dad dad, pops, but I think for me, it's that we have an intimate enough relationship. I know this sounds weird. That I just I call him Jim sometime. I call him James sometime. I can use any word for my dad simply because we have this close, tight-knit relationship. And I think that's what being, is being demonstrated. Papa, daddy, dad, father, whatever you use for a dad that you are close to, that the Holy Spirit is working in us and saying, now you can call the God of the universe that. By the way, every Jewish reader of this would have just been blown away. I mean, they wouldn't even say God's name, right? Like, and the idea that now I can be like Papa or Daddy, like this is a mind-blowing idea for the writer of this book named Paul, right? Like he was a Jewish man who this concept is nuts. It's crazy. And he's saying this, the Holy Spirit is saying, you can have this level of intimacy with your adopted father that you can call him whatever close name you would call your dad. This leads, this just shows us what incredible and beautiful intimacy we can have with God. And I would say this, that part of our sanctification that the Holy Spirit is working in us and part of our, our security in our salvation that the Holy Spirit is working in us, I think is this, based on what this says. Are we growing in our love and intimacy with God? Are we more and more looking at God as the perfect heavenly father? 
Because sometimes we can see God as like Santa Claus, you know, just give me whatever I want. That's not the description here. Sometimes we can see God as, you know, an angry punisher that just always wants to be mad at us. And, you know, we have to walk on eggshells all the time because we don't want to make him mad or tick him off because we don't want to be condemned, right? We don't want to be declared guilty and get on God's bad side. But growth, I think, in the Christian faith and security in the Christian faith is moving more fully into understanding how incredible it is that we can call the creator of the universe daddy. That we would dare even now, as I do with my dad, to call him Jim, you know, out of affection, that we would dare to utter the name Yahweh, the name that God has given himself. Growing in that is growing in our our faith and growing in our security to understand God's paternal love and therefore our love back to that paternal father. Growing in that is being sanctified and, and growing in our security in the faith. And, and if you're a child of God, and we're going to hit on this more next week because it just continues to be awesome and get better all the way through Romans 8. And then we hit Romans 9, it's going to be a little more difficult. But man, it just grows in just how incredible it is. Because if you're a child of God, you have an inheritance, Paul says here, and you get to look forward to glory. And we'll, we'll just, that's, what, that's what next week is about. Uh, this morning I've shared the gospel. And, and for some of you out there, I want you to just hear me. You need to become a Christian. Because if you do, you'll have victory over your flesh that is controlling you, your sin dominates itself. You'll have victory over that. And you'll have victory over fear. But for those of us who are Christians, man, I think this passage is so important. I need to be really real, and uh, I'm going to tread lightly, but not too lightly. Some of you, first, are living for your sin-dominated self, and you're not listening to the Holy Spirit at all. And that is unbecoming of a person who is in the realm of Christ. And you need to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? And if you can answer that question, yes, if you've really placed your faith in Jesus, if you really committed your life to him, then you need to say, what do I need to do to stop living for my sin-dominated self? We have embraced sin in the American Christian culture far too freely and openly, and it needs to stop. That is not what Christians do. We don't live for our sin-dominated selves. We live in light of what the Spirit is compelling within us. And we cannot embrace or accept sin as though it is okay, it's not a big deal. We, we are not in that realm anymore. We are not in the realm of flesh. We have victory over flesh, and we now live for the Spirit of God who lives in us. But others of us, others of you, you are absolutely living in fear. And I know that when I say this, so many people are going to hear me wrong, but as a society in the last year, we've moved from flattening a curve to protecting grandma to what I'm witnessing all around me now, and that's just pure fear. And it's in Christians too. And I'm not saying stop washing your hands. I'm not saying masks aren't important. I'm not saying don't listen to science. I am saying that this passage shows me that Christians should not live in fear. And so many people I'm around have moved past 
I'm going to do my best to love my neighbor to I'm scared to death to be around other people and do what God has called me to do. And Paul has expressly stated, explicitly and expressly stated that you are no longer a slave to fear if you are in the realm of Christ. Because, Paul has shown us, we are now children of God and so therefore we can trust the creator of the universe with our souls and if he chooses to let us die on this earth, we look forward to a resurrection with a far better body that is imperishable. We'll never die again. And so I have to say to some of you, I know everything can be just, I hate this about preaching right now. Everything can be seen through a lens of a political viewpoint. And I'm not being political. I'm not being unscientific. I believe Christians invented science. I am pro-science. I need you to understand that. And at the same time, understand that if you are living in fear, you are not living according to the spirit. And you need to stop and get alone in your room, and need to ask the Spirit to do a work in your life. Please, please hear me on this. Stop living in fear. Start living in light of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We can't have Christians running around scared. We can have Christians running around being safe. We can have Christians running around protecting their neighbors, making sure grandma stays alive. But we just can't have Christians running around scared. That's not what the Bible, that's not the picture the Bible gives. <laughs> I'm scared to do what I'm going to do next. But I think, I think what God laid on my heart uh, as I was prayer walking the other day is I'm going to sing you a chorus from a song. Uh, just, just one line. My dad giggles because he's heard me sing. Um, but I think God wants to sing this over you. I think the Holy Spirit wants to sing this song over you. Uh, You may have heard the song, No Longer Slaves. We do it as a church. It says, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And and I'm going to sing it to you because I think you need to hear it and you need to know it. You're no longer a slave to fear. You are a child of God. You're no longer a slave to fear. You are a child of God. You're no longer a slave to fear. You are a child of God.